Father, thank you, as we've just heard in this passage, that you love us. As we come now to study and think more carefully about 1 John 4, I pray that you would not only help us to know your love more fully, but that you would help us to see the joy with which you love. Open our hearts to see and know the extent to which you have demonstrated your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What would you do for love? How far would you go to demonstrate love or to receive love? I did a bit of a we did a bit of research on this topic this week, a short survey amongst the staff, uh, also a little bit of research online, and I've compiled the results here just for you. It seems that people have moved city for love. They've moved country for love. They've quit their job. They've quit smoking. They've lost friends or family. They've lost weight. They've lost money. They've lost the ability to think clearly. You know, I know men who have sat through six hours of the BBC's production of Pride and Prejudice. And there's women who have watched all seven Fast and Furious movies. One staff member, whose name shall remain Mike Mathis, even memorized the lyrics for two albums just to impress the woman he loved. <laughs> Paid off in the end. She just read the passage for us. There's many stories of people who have, in an effort to gain their father's love, have taken a job that they hate. I heard the story of one mother who, in a superhuman feat, lifted a car off her trapped son. And then just recently in Kerala, sadly, A mother killed her 14-year-old son because his father's family was turning him against her. And the idea of life without her son's love was too much to bear. She would rather have a life with no love than have his rejection. My conclusion of this short survey is that we have a love problem. We are lovesick, we're lovestruck, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. It seems that human beings have a built-in desire to both love and to be loved, and while there are many beautiful expressions of love, there's equally gross distortions of love. So it's no wonder that when we come to look at love in the Bible, and specifically God's love, Our view of love is just filled with unbiblical ideas. It's hard to know God's love and even to feel God's love because our experience of love has been so negative and so distorted. So we're afraid of rejection. We think, well, if that person knew what I was really like, then they wouldn't love me. And then we project that idea onto God, who does know what I'm really like, So how could he possibly love me? We think that we have to become someone else to please a certain group of people. And we think that if God is going to love me, then I also have to become like 
he wants me to be. I have to become lovable so that he will love me. Or then on the opposite extreme, we minimize God's love and maximize ourselves by saying, well, of course God loves me. What's not to love? You know, when these are our ideas of love, it becomes hard to truly know God's love and in turn to truly love each other. So our passage this morning in 1 John 4 is both a redefining of God's love and also a call to demonstrate that love to one another. So if you're taking notes, those are the two points. Firstly, that God's demonstrated love and our fearless love. God's demonstrated love and secondly, our fearless love. <clears throat> so firstly, God's demonstrated love. So you know the funny thing about love is that it can appear elusive. So just the other day, I told my wife, I love her. Now, don't worry, it's not the first time. In fact, I, I tell her almost every single day. But no matter how strong that feeling is in my heart, and no matter how many times I say the words, I love you, she will not know my love and experience my love unless I demonstrate it in some way. There has to be some kind of outward expression for it to be known and experienced by her. It must be demonstrated. Well, the same is true with God's love. Verse seven tells us that love is from God. That's where it originates and it proceeds from. But unless his love is demonstrated in some way, we won't be able to know it. So how do we see God's love? How has God shown it to us? Verse nine, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son, only son, into the world. <clears throat> That's how we know what God's love is like, because he has demonstrated it in a most profound and miraculous way. The eternal, pre-existent son of the father sent by the Father into the world on a rescue mission. Now, did you know that the Bible actually speaks about God's love in different ways, even in the passage that we're looking at? So I was trying to think of an analogy that might help us better understand it, and hopefully this helps. It's kind of like different shades of a color. So I look at these chairs, and I say, well, the chairs are blue. Now, my wife, who apparently knows names for colors that I didn't know existed, says, well, that's not maybe blue, that's more of a navy blue. Or actually, it's cobalt or teal, which I'm not sure if that's really blue or not, but apparently it is. The internet tells me so. <clears throat> so it's the same color, but it's expressed in different shades. Well, God's love is a bit like that. It's the same love, but it's expressed in a depth and a richness that if I were to say that it's only navy blue, then I'm missing out on seeing the beauty of the full range of his love. So in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, D.A. Carson takes us to five different ways in which God's love 
is seen in Scripture. So if you're taking notes, it might be worth writing these down. These, this will help us understand more about what's going on in 1 John chapter 4. So the first aspect of God's love is the intra-Trinitarian love that the Father enjoys with the Son and the Spirit. John 3.35 says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And likewise, Jesus says in John 14.31 that I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So God's love is firstly among the persons of the Trinity, which is actually unique to Christianity because it means that God is content and ultimately happy within himself. In contrast to humans, he has no need of anyone to love him. Well, the second aspect of God's love is his general love for all of creation. It's sometimes referred to as his providence or his loving providence. In Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He delighted in his creation. But it didn't end just there. He goes on to continue to lovingly provide for his creation. So Matthew 6, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Our Creator lovingly provides for his creation. Then the third aspect of God's love is God's general attitude of salvation towards his fallen world. So you see this in passages like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes him may not perish, but have everlasting life. In Isaiah 55, the, the passage that John shared to us as an assurance of pardon, come all you who are thirsty. As the invitation is open to all. God has a general desire, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, that all people would be saved. And we're called in Matthew 5, 54 to model that love as well, as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us so that you may be sons or that we may be like our Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He loves all people in this way. The invitation is given to everyone to repent and trust in Jesus. But then there's a fourth aspect of God's love that is seen only in his specific love towards his elect. So while God generally desires his fallen world to return to him, there is an aspect of his glorious love that is only seen in how he loves those who are his. You know, the passage we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 7 says that clearly it wasn't because the Israelites were more in number that he loved them, but he chose them because he loves them. He chose to love them. 
Or Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that in love he predestined us to be adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This love is so glorious. This love that he has for his church, so good that husbands are called to model it to their wives in Ephesians 5 verse 25. So this aspect of God's love, his love for the elect, is what's in view in 1 John chapter 4. And what's interesting is that this kind of love, this aspect of God's love, produces change in people's lives. According to verse 9, it produces life and love in a person where before there was none. So a person who has been loved by God in this way now has the capacity to love others in the same way that they have been loved because of this new life that's within them. In essence, that's John's whole point. Right? You'll know that you're really a believer because you find in yourself the ability to love others in the same way that God has loved you. Well, how is that? How has he loved us? Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't do anything to deserve his love. There's nothing inherently lovable about us. Neither did he look down from heaven and and know in advance that we would respond positively to the invitation. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. The very demonstration of God sending Jesus was because we were dead in our sins. You saw that in verse nine. If Christ had not come, we would still be dead. Then verse 10 tells us that the reason Jesus was sent was so that he would be a propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that word mean? Propitiation is not an everyday word, but it's an important one, and it's worth understanding. Propitiation has to do with satisfying God's wrath against sin. So it's similar to atonement, But propitiation reminds us that without Christ, God's wrath is directed straight at us. The emphasis is on God's wrath against sin. It highlights that though God is abounding in love, it's not his only character trait. He is also holy and just. He is righteously angry against sin and rebellion. He hates sin. So if you tend toward thinking, well, of course God loves me. I mean, why wouldn't he? Think again. The very demonstration of his love towards the elect also shows that he is holy and righteous and a judge who will not simply sweep our sin under the cosmic carpet. God's love never simply accepts us as we are in our rebellion against him, as if true love is blind. It's not. True love, love that has not been distorted or corrupted by the sin of this world, is the love of the Father. And it is love that satisfies the Father's wrath through the Son's death on the cross. 
Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's how we know the Father's love. Jesus, the Lamb of God, in my place. His blood poured out. My sin erased. It was my death that he died. I am raised to life. Hallelujah. Praise God for his love. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we will never, ever again face God's wrath against us in this way. Our relationship with God has forever been changed. We will instead know his love forever and ever. He will never let us go. That's how God has loved us. That's how we know God's love. So we've seen the intra-Trinitarian love of God within himself. And then that love generally given to all of creation in his provision. And then as God's general attitude of salvation towards his fallen world, his invitation, and then his specific love towards those he has chosen. But there's a really interesting shade of God's love that we don't often think about or understand. It's the aspect of God's love that is conditional. Conditional love. Perhaps you picked it up in some of the passages that we've read. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The Lord keeps his commandment. He's faithful. But it's with those who love him and keep his commandment. There's a condition that his people would stay in his love. And we see the same thing in John chapter 15, verse 10, where it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. When we abide in his love, when we keep his commandments, we are modeling what Christ does. He keeps his Father's commandments and abides in his Father's love. The love that we have been given, God's love expects something of us. It's like a father who loves his children simply because they are his children. That will never change. And yet at the same time, he disciplines them and corrects them to keep them in his love. When they disobey or they rebel, a father is not pleased with his son. And he may remove privileges or affection. The relationship becomes strained and conversation is made difficult because the son has not remained in his father's love through obedience. Now, of course, that analogy is filled with problems because human fathers are just far from perfect. But when it comes to our relationship with our heavenly father, the call is clear we are to remain in his love by ongoing obedience. So that's why John writes in verse 12, if we love one another, God's love, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
Abiding in God is an ongoing expectation for the believer. God is faithful to his covenant, his love is steadfast, and we can depend on it. But at the same time, his love produces change in us that comes with expectations. It requires work on our part. And the particular kind of work that we're being called to in 1 John 4 is that we love one another. That's the command that we have from him in verse 12. So, God's love is rich. It's beautiful. It's abounding and steadfast, and it is seen and expressed in different ways towards his creation. So one immediate application of this is that we need to be careful about how we talk about God's love. We need to be careful not to make one aspect of God's love ultimate. For example, you ask most Christians, well, what is God's love like? And I say, well, God's love is unconditional. And that's true, but only true of the aspect of his love that is expressed towards the elect in saving them. Or you might say that God loves everyone the same. And that's true of the aspects of his love seen towards his creation and his general desire and invitation that all people would be saved. But it's not true about all aspects of his love. The love that God experiences within himself as Trinity is poured out towards his creation generally through his ongoing loving provision And he desires for all of his fallen world to return to him. And at the same time, he has demonstrated his love by choosing some and appeasing his wrath through Christ's sacrifice so that those people would have life. Those who are God's children experience God's love in a particular way. And as children are expected to remain in that love by obeying him and loving one another. That's the beauty and the magnitude of God's love. It's God's demonstrated love. But there's still one question remaining about God's love. And as I was thinking through this passage this week, when I asked myself this question, it, like, it was like light bulbs went on. The question is this. Why? Why does God love? Why does he do any of it? He didn't need to. He didn't need to send his son. He didn't need us to make him happy or feel good about himself. He was perfect and hang content with him in himself, like the, the Trinitarian love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, perfect throughout all eternity past. So why Does God love? Well, the answer is there in verse 8. Because God is love. Love is certainly from God, but it's because God is love. Fundamentally, that's who He is. It gives Him great pleasure to love. It's a joyful expression of His own character, and as such, gives Him great joy to do so. It's not because we're lovely. It's not because we had something to offer him in return for his love. 
God loves simply because it's an overflow of his very being. He tells us that. We don't have to guess. He tells us that in Jeremiah 9.24. The Lord says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, puts it this way. He loves because he delights to love. He does not seek to hide from himself the reward of love, lest the as act be ruined by the anticipated joy that comes from it. So in Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus endured the cross, that pinnacle, that demonstration of God's love in the most profound and obvious way for all. Why? For the joy that was set before him. That's why Jesus did it. That joy that is the the joy of the Father over the Son as he perfectly obeys him. And it's the joy of the Son as he perfectly obeys the Father and remains in his love. And it's the joy of the Spirit as he pours out that love on those whom the Father predestined in love. And it's the joy of those who have been called his children, invited into that love. That's why God loves, because he delights to do so. And that is both why and how we are called to love one another. Verse 11 says that if God has so loved us, that has loved us in this way, with sacrifice and with joy that flows out of his heart of love, we also ought to love one another in the same way. Or verse 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love, that is, whoever practices love, this kind of love, abides in God, and God abides in him. The reason that we can love one another in this way is because it flows out of the new life that we have in Christ. So what does that look like? Well, that's our second point this morning. Fearless love. Our fearless love. Do you remember those stories of what people are willing to do for love? When our inbuilt need for love is corrupted by sin, our hearts go searching for love and we will do anything to get it. It becomes an idol in itself and we worship love and then fear creeps in. Verse 18 says that fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now this plays out in our human relationships in any number of ways. We're afraid of rejection and we're afraid of loss. We try to please people because we're afraid that if they don't accept us, that we'll lose something. In contrast, those who have been perfected in love, that is, those who have experienced the saving love of Christ through his propitiation of their sin, they have no fear. They know that what Christ has done in their place means they will never, ever face punishment from the Father. 
But when that day of judgment that's spoken about in verse 17 comes, they will be confident before the Father. They'll be fearless. Or to put it in the words of verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We've been made new. Our fundamental being has changed and we no longer love out of fear or need, but because God abides in us. His spirit in us produces love that's consistent with being God's children. consistent with being born of God. We love in this way then because it is a joyful expression of our new creation in Christ. We love in this way quite simply because it's who we are now. How freeing is that? Do you hear how that is just not legalism? This is not John telling us, hey, make sure you love one another. Make sure that you love one another so that God will love you. No, it's this love that flows out of being changed by his love, a love that demonstrates the reality of who we are now in Christ. That's what it means to love fearlessly. So what about you? Perhaps you've been coming along to Redeemer now for a while. You've noticed that there's something different about these people. They're friendly. They often have smiles on their faces and they they seem to love one another in ways that don't really make sense. My friend, if your experience of Redeemer is like this, if you come along and you, you don't really understand or have any sense of this kind of love and why the people of Redeemer love one another in this way, then what John is saying to you is perhaps you're not actually a Christian. Perhaps you're even doing the external motions of what you think it means to be a Christian, but fundamentally, there's not been any real heart change. Then what John says to you is this, receive God's love. This love that sent Jesus to be a propitiation for your sins, that's how he has demonstrated His love. That's how you know that that it's true and that it's real. That he really did come. He really did die on the cross for your sins and he rose again. So that you would have life. So believe it. Verse 16 says that the reason behind why Christians love one another is because we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. He is inviting you into that love today. Receive it. Receive his love by firstly recognizing that you don't deserve it in any way. And then believe that Christ has died in your place for your sin. If this is you, I would encourage you to talk to any one of the members of our church. Come talk to me, one of the other pastors. Don't leave it. Hear God's clear invitation. Receive his love today. But what if you have been changed? What if you have received his love and you find in yourself now that your heart's changed? There's new desires, there's new thoughts. Shouldn't loving one another then just be automatic? 
Shouldn't it just kind of flow and sort of be all organic and natural? Why do we need John to command us to love one another? Because it's not automatic, is it? Just ask any husband who's been married for a few years. It takes thoughtfulness. It takes care. It takes insight. It takes wisdom. It takes work. The ability is there because God's spirit abides in us, but the demonstration of his love in us requires us to live it out, especially when it's hard. That's what John means when he says in verse 12 that his love is perfected in us. So another way of saying that is that his love is brought to completion in us. It carries the sense that when we in turn love others in the way that God has loved us, it completes the outworking and the intended effect of God's love towards us. So again, in verse 17, by this is love perfected with us. When we demonstrate this fearless love to one another, it gives us confidence that we are truly in Christ. So here's a few practical ways to think through how we might, together as a church, increasingly demonstrate fearless love to one another. So the first one, become a member of Redeemer. If you say that you love God, then show it. Show it by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your relationships of love require commitment. And the clearest way that you can demonstrate love and commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ is to commit to them in membership, both for your good and for theirs. It's not just a name in a directory. It's promising to actually love one another by name, to demonstrate the love of Christ in real and practical ways. So that's first step, make a commitment to love one another through membership. That's our next membership class is coming up on February the 16th. I want to invite you to come. If you're not a member, come along. Find out what it means to commit to one another in brotherly love. Well, the second thing is to think about how we think about other Christians. The way in which we think about or view other Christians dramatically affects the way in which we relate to them. So when you look at someone else at Redeemer, do you think firstly about what that person can do for you? You know, that person, that that person makes me laugh. I love being around that person. But that guy over there, man, he is just awkward to be around. And I just really struggle to understand his accent. So I'll just kind of avoid him. And that family, well, honestly, if their kids could be, if their kids could be a bit more well-behaved like the Jones kids, <laughs> then maybe I'd be willing to let my kids play with them. You know, when we tend to think about people in ways that primarily have us at the center, that's not fearless love at all. It's love that fears or worships what they have to offer us or what they can't offer us. 
But fearless love doesn't think about people in that way. Fearless love loves not because they can offer us something, but rather because we have first been loved. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Now, flowing out of how we think about Christians is how we speak about other Christians. So that's the third practical way. How do we speak about other Christians? The way we speak about one another will either build up and encourage or it will bring down. We may couch it in spiritual language, you know, just for prayer or, yeah, I have a concern about this person. But at the end of the day, when we tell someone else something that is not ours to tell, it's gossip. Few things are more destructive to the corporate witness and the corporate health of our church than gossip. So let's be careful about what we do with the information our brothers and sisters share with us. If we use that information to show someone else that we know more than they do, then we're actually just operating out of fear. We want to be seen to know things and to be important. But fearless love is discreet and trustworthy with others because we know that Christ has already bestowed on us immeasurable honor and love that we don't need to find it in other people's approval of us. But you know, there's a similar temptation with our speech, and it has to do with how we speak about Redeemer Church. It's tempting, isn't it, to generalize and say that, well, Redeemer is like this, and Redeemer is like that. But if we love our church, if we truly love one another, we will identify with our church so closely that our language will reflect it. We will speak about our church. And when we recognize areas where there's problems or where growth is needed, we'll say, we need to grow in this area. What can we do about this in our church? So let's grow together in the way that we speak about each other in our church. Well, here's a fourth practical way that we can love fearlessly. It's give love before it is received. That's the way the Lord's loved us, right? Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So look out for ways that you can be the first to demonstrate love. Look for an opportunity to help someone in need or or even just give simply because there's joy in giving. If you feel like the Spirit is prompting you to care for someone in a particular way or to pray for them, then don't ignore it. Don't be afraid of how they might respond to you or what they might think of you. Go and demonstrate fearless love. You know, when we're kind or generous with someone because they've done something for us already, then it's not really any different from what we see in the world. But fearless love demonstrates love first, without any intention of getting something in return. Make it a competition to outdo one another in demonstrating love first. And the fifth way is this, love joyfully. 
We've already seen that the reason that God loves is because he delights to do so. He loves because it's a joyful expression of his very being. So it makes sense then that as his children, in whom he abides by his spirit, that we would be filled with joy as we love others. There is great joy for us in fearless love, joy that comes from giving love, joy that comes from benefiting others, and joy that comes as we abide in our Father's love and and bring to completion His love that has been poured out on us. Can you imagine what it would be like if we kept on looking for ways to love one another and we did it joyfully? Oh, I want to be part of that church. Let's be part of that church together. Let's love joyfully because of what he has done in us. Not begrudgingly or out of a sense of duty, but for the joy that comes together as we love one another. Well, lastly, perhaps one of the hardest ways for us to demonstrate fearless love is to reconcile broken relationships. That's what Christ did for us. He stood in our place and he satisfied the wrath of God so that we would be restored to a right relationship with him. Because that is the way he has loved us, we therefore are able to reconcile with one another. We are able to demonstrate fearless love because he has reconciled us to him. We remember his reconciliation every month, visibly, through the celebration of communion, or the Lord's Supper, which we are going to take together now. Now, communion is a symbol of three things. The first is that God's love for us now as Christians is only and will always be because of Christ's death on the cross. It's a reminder that each one of us has been saved only because of his broken body and shed blood in our place. So as we receive the bread and the cup, it's a picture of our continued dependence on Christ's sacrifice, Christ's propitiation for our sins. And the second thing is that as we eat this together, it reminds us of our unity in Christ. So we take it together as a church, not on our own at home, because Christ's death has brought us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That means communion is a meal for Christians, but specifically for Christians who are trusting and repenting of their sin trusting in Christ's righteousness, repenting of their sin. In particular, and in light of our passage this morning, if you consider yourself a Christian, but there is an unreconciled relationship between you and another Christian, an unwillingness to forgive in your heart towards someone in this church, then I would urge you, use this time now to first repent be reconciled to God, and then after the service, go seek that person out. Ask them for forgiveness. Repent of sin that you have sinned against them. Be reconciled with them 
as a demonstration of fearless love and then partake of communion with joy next month. Well, a third thing that communion symbolizes is that Christ will return. In Matthew 26, 29, having just given the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to the apostles, Jesus gives us this unwavering promise. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus has promised. He is coming back and he will bring us to himself that we will sit with him and enjoy and celebrate his saving love forever and ever. So as we take communion with each other this morning, we do so with hope, joyfully looking forward to his return. Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, that is, you have not repented of your sin, you have not placed your faith in Christ for salvation, then I would caution you and urge you to let the bread and the cup pass you by. This is not something that is particular to our church, but it's the clear teaching of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, which says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. As we head now into a short time of meditation, this would be a good opportunity to consider your relationships with others. Let's take a few moments in silence to remember what Jesus has done for us and consider how our relationships with others is or is not a reflection of that love that we have received. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Loving Father, Thank you for demonstrating your love to us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place as a propitiation for our sin. Lord, as we take this bread and cup, we remember that Jesus not only died, but that he rose again and will one day return to take us to be with you forever. Father, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, reminding us Remind us of our ongoing dependence on you by your spirit. And would our church be marked by fearless love that flows out of your abundant and steadfast love for us. Lord, help us to love each other with a spirit-filled, vivacious joy that just flows from you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.